The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Cases in the Community, Optimizing Treatment and Considering Weight Management as a Primary Goal in People with T2DM. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XCX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, my name is Dr. Javier Morales. I'm Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell on Long Island, New York. And I'm joined today by Dr. Jay Shubrook, who's the Professor and Interim Chair of the Department of Clinical Science and Community Health, as well as a diabetologist from Turo University, uh, California, College of Osteopathic Medicine in California. Jay, thank you for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. We're going to have some fun. Yes, we are. And the title of today's presentation is Cases in the Community, Optimizing Treatment and Considering Weight Management as a Primary Goal in People with Type 2 Diabetes. So let's roll up our sleeves and let's get started because now is the time to intensify treatment to minimize the risks associated with comorbidities, including type 2 diabetes, in our patients with obesity. So here's some fast facts on diabetes in the United States from 2022. We could see that 37.3 million people suffer with diabetes in the United States, with 28.7 million people, including 28.5 million adults, having been diagnosed. But there is a fair amount of people who have not been diagnosed, and that is 8.5 million people, and oftentimes may present to your emergency department with heart failure or an acute coronary syndrome where the diagnosis is made. So pre-diabetes is pretty prevalent. We could see that 96 million people 18 years of age or older, which constitutes 38% of adults, do suffer with pre-diabetes. And what's also really important is that the older population uh, in fact, 48.8% of people over the age of 65 do suffer with prediabetes and significant comorbidities. What we can expect is that at least one out of three people will develop type 2 diabetes in their lifetime. So when it comes to the diagnosis of diabetes, I think many of us have been relying solely on that hemoglobin A1C on a random blood test. And if that hemoglobin A1C is greater than or equal to 6.5%, they do have diabetes. But what if your hemoglobin A1C is less than 6.5%? Well, certainly there might be some, um, some sort of clues or inkling, metabolically speaking, that there may be underlying diabetes. And this could be some electrolyte aberrancies, but mainly more so with lipids. So when you're looking at somebody who has, let's say, um, a low HDL and a high triglycerides, then perhaps challenging them with a two-hour postprandial glucose might be in order because the earlier diagnosis of type 2 diabetes with earlier institution of therapy may help to mitigate some of these complications that are associated with diabetes as had been noted in some of the more classical trials like DETECT2 where microvascular complications actually occur before the diagnosis of diabetes is actually made. Now, really important is that random glucose or the fasting glucose for the most part. And if you have a fasting glucose of greater than 126, you have diabetes, but got to be aware of those patients that have that uh, fasting glucose between 100 and 125. 
Now, over the years, we've had an evolution of different therapies that have become available for the management of type 2 diabetes. And, well, these include things like thiazolidine dienes, incretin-based therapies, either GLP-1 receptor agonists or inhibitors of the enzymes responsible for breaking down GLP-1, uh such as DPP-4, and then we also have the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um but when you're looking at all of these different medications that have become available, it seems that we're not embracing them as well as we should because when we're looking at the relative proportion of patients with a hemoglobin A1C of less than 8% over these years, you could see that there's been minimal movement in terms of that hemoglobin A1C value, which is why it's important to try to avert some of that clinical inertia because when we look at complications associated with type 2 diabetes, they're classically defined as microvascular and macrovascular complications. And when we're looking at microvascular complications, it winds up that uh, diabetic retinopathy winds up being the forerunner in terms of the more common microvascular complication that we see, followed by uh, neuropathy and nephropathy. But the kidney is actually really, really important because now we know that uh, kidney dysfunction, and if your GFR is less than 60, it really uh, constitutes a coronary artery disease equivalent. And if we're looking at um, macrovascular complications, these include the classic heart disease, heart failure, stroke, but peripheral arteriolar disease tends to be far more common presentation as a macrovascular complication for our patients uh, with type 2 diabetes. So, Jay, what do you think about that connection between type 2 diabetes and obesity? Let's hear from you. Yeah, thank you for such a great introduction and I think it's important to recognize that diabetes affects the whole body and and so you're not just focusing on a glucocentric pattern and today we're going to talk a little bit more about the connection with type 2 diabetes and obesity as a driver for some of these things. So when we look at obesity measurement or the excessive weight, it is important to recognize that BMI is the current standard and we can agree or disagree whether that's the best standard, but it is um used universally it is included in every chart and if we use BMI as a measurement you can see that it has steadily increased over the last 20 years and and so when it increases you can also see that that means more people are being suffer are suffering from not only the weight itself but the downstream effects of weight such as diabetes hypertension and cardiovascular disease when we look at um how the distribution of uh, excessive weight is affected over our population it's important to recognize that this has not been equally uh distributed and this is increasing in all populations so this is really something important for us to recognize as a driver and then when we look at this relationship um it's important to recognize that this is a driver but it's not universal there are people who have excessive weight but have the ability to have uh either the genetic makeup or the the beta cell resilience to be able to handle normal normal glycemia despite some of the challenges now that's becoming fewer and fewer people because we know that many people are pre-exposed to the risk of insulin resistance and so if you've got a a beta cell genetic defect or you've got uh insulin resistance and then you start to put out a paucity on top of that 
you're starting to drive this hyperinsulinemia, which is going to drive insulin resistance in peripheral tissues. And ultimately, in those people at risk, it's going to lead to dysglycemia. And this is something that doesn't occur over weeks. This occurs over years. And so we do have a, a population that really could um, have an intervention earlier on to help. And then I think it's important, and Javier, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We really need to be mindful that many of our treatments, not only just ones that affect um, psychiatric conditions, but also hypertension, pain, seizure medicines, often our medications contribute to weight gain. And so we're actually setting our patients up for even further challenges. I don't know, how often do you see this in, in your practice? Well, you know, Jay... Uh, being a primary care clinician, and just like all other primary care clinicians, we have the weight of the world on our shoulders. And when the patients come in to see us, you're right, we have to manage their lipids, we have to manage their hypertension. And there's also mood disorder and neurological uh, effects, sometimes related to diabetes or, or other reasons that we manage. And yeah, I think it's really important that um, when we're reaching for agents to manage these chronic illnesses, we need to take weight into consideration. And uh, I've become a little bit more sensitive to this of late because of the association that I've learned in clinical practice of the weight gain associated with some of these very agents. Sometimes it's difficult to find the replacement agent that may be weight friendly or may uh, lead to a little bit of weight loss, but it is a challenge uh, and we all need to take this into consideration when managing our patients. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna ask you to take it over and talk about timely intensification. Absolutely, so I think it's really important to remember that we do have a lot of agencies that help us along with treatment choices for our patients. One of the most respected agencies or organizations is the American Diabetes Association, and this is actually a living document that's updated on a yearly basis, and it is largely driven by newer publications and newer outcome studies that have become available. And when it comes to managing our patients with type 2 diabetes, things have changed over the years because we used to be glucose-centric, trying to choose the correct medications to bring our patients' hemoglobin A1Cs down to target. And now what has uh, changed over the past several years is an evolution, and it's become more patient-centric. So we need to look at our patients to determine whether or not they have established cardiovascular disease, whether or not they're at risk of heart failure, whether or not chronic kidney disease exists because of the association of mortality with CKD. Uh, and also we have to take into consideration uh, trying to avoid some of the challenges of intensification, such as hypoglycemia and uh, weight gain. So um, overreaching goals of care and management of type 2 diabetes and the use of glucose-lowering medications winds up being really, really important. And when we're having that discussion with the patient, we can throw out a comment such as, I want to help to protect your organs, with the ultimate goal being cardiorenal risk reduction. And that should be in the back of our minds all the time and choosing not just medications that are effective with end organ, but with demonstrable uh, statistically significant end organ effect demonstrated. Another catchphrase would be, 
I want to help you to achieve your blood sugar and weight goals to reduce risk of complications. That winds up being very important and a very powerful phrase because now you're recruiting the patient into the decision-making process and ultimately the goal of achieving those glycemic and weight management targets would be easier to achieve. So unfortunately, we are challenged with several different things, and that is treatment inertia. And it occurs much more commonly than we realize. And again, because we have the weight of the world on our shoulders as primary care clinicians, we need to, well, maybe even consider scheduling diabetes-only visits, having office staff remind us and our patients Uh, particularly the patients to bring their glucose logs, but maybe remind us that, hey, it's time for that diabetes visit. And we should really aim to adjust therapy at any given time based on hemoglobin A1c or other targets that may not be at goal. So of course, hemoglobin A1c is assessed every three months, And some people that have hemoglobinopathies, um, that hemoglobin A1c may be challenged. But recognizing treatment inertia on the part of the patient is really important. And we know that having diabetes is not easy. There's a lot of distress that occurs with the patient. They tend to get moody. They may be uh, depressed. They may not understand as much as they really should. And if that's the case, maybe we should be seeing our patients a little bit more frequently even if their hemoglobin A1Cs are much higher than we would like it to be. And recruiting the patient and coming up with a treatment plan that takes into account the patient's needs, concerns, and wishes winds up being really, really important and also stimulates our patient to become more engaged to achieve those targets. And those very targets really should be reviewed on a more frequent basis. So DCRM is a multi-specialty, multidisciplinary guideline that actually has put together some of the recommendations from these multiple specialties in, and to uh, compile it into a super easy, uh, uh, readable uh, recommendation uh, that's easy to follow for us as clinicians. And it hopes to bridge the gaps between all of these multiple specialties. And oftentimes, following the recommendations in DCRM would be welcomed across all of these multiple specialties. So when we're looking at this, there is actually a hierarchy and there's some guidance that's given, again, looking at whether or not patients have coronary disease, whether or not they have heart failure or chronic kidney disease with hierarchy uh, being given to which agents really are preferable. So what's some uh, helpful tactics that we can uh, use for our patients to help them overcome some of these challenges? I think that many patients really want to know how the medications will affect their diabetes and potential adverse events that they might experience. So that being the case, it's important for us to talk to the patient and let them know what potential adverse events they might experience, particularly with incretin-based therapies, because some of these patients may develop a little bit of nausea, uh, and that's really uh, because of the delay in gastric emptying how to avert some of those challenges, and how to reduce some of the long-term risks of GI adverse events. Jay, how do you talk to your patients about some of the adverse events related to incretin-based therapies? Yeah, I think patients want to know, one, you know, how are they going to take it? 
Um, what are the details? What are the most common side effects? And what can they do about it? And what's normal and what's not normal? And I think with any medication, and that's true with GLP-1 receptor agonists as well, let them know what are the common side effects and how to handle them. What are the problem side effects when they should stop and call us? And when you do that, they almost always will come back and say, I was so happy to know that this was normal and I could wait this out because I know it was going to go away. Or you told me to call you and I'm, and I'm worried about this. So I think giving them advice about the bumper rails really helps them to feel comfortable. Jay, I'm going to kick it over to you because now we're going to be talking about weighing those options for glucose management and weight loss. So you're going to see this uh, graphic a couple times in this presentation, and this is from um, the ADA, and it really focuses on holistic person-centered approach to type 2 diabetes. And, and you see there are four segments to this wheel. We're going to hit each of those segments. So we start with glycemic management, and certainly one of the things we need to think about is what is their current A1C? What is the goal A1C for them? So how much efficacy do you need? And how do we avoid hypoglycemia as a driver of, of challenges with therapeutic inertia? So when we look at these medications, and this is really good for the clinician to know, what's the mean A1C drop you might get with each of the classes of medicines? And you can individualize your therapy based upon where you need to go. So you can see on the left-hand side, uh, if you're looking at under 1% A1C uh, drop on average, you've got multiple oral agents, including alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, DPP-4 inhibitors, uh, maglitinides, um, one of the TZDs, and then SGLT2 inhibitors. When you start moving up in potency to just about 1%, you can see you've got many of the SGLT2 inhibitors, some of the early GLP-1 receptor agonists. You've got metformin, pyloglazone, and sulfonylureas. When you start moving to wanting more than 1% A1C reduction, you're really looking at uh, insulin-based therapies or GLP-1-based therapies, particularly long-acting GLP-1-based therapies. So you're going to start seeing that these agents have a greater A1C reduction, and you might preferentially choose them if you need to get more than 1% reduction. And now the newest kid on the block, at least as of today, uh, the twin cretin terzepatide can get you more than 2% A1C reduction. So let's put them together, because when you see the top list of the diabetes medications and their A1C reduction, you can also then see in the bottom there what medications have been approved for weight loss and what is their relative contribution to A1C reduction. Again, you can see on the, on the left-hand side um, that you can uh, get a, a little bit more variety in the stimulant-based therapies. Uh, something such as Orlistat, you'll get a mild A1C reduction. But as you start to move up uh, uh, to the... Um, in cretin-based therapies, again, you're getting reduction in A1C, but you're also getting that additional indication for weight loss. And so this is important that you really can address two of the core defects at one time. Now let's go back to that circle. We're looking now at the bottom right. We also want to achieve and maintain weight management goals. So weight management is a universal part of diabetes management. Certainly in type 2 diabetes, it may be one of the core defects. But even patients with type 1 typically gain weight as a side effect of exogenous insulin. So I think it's important for us to have a conversation about weight and why it's important as it relates to the management of diabetes. Recognize that lifestyle will always be the foundation and it should be continued throughout someone's duration of diabetes. But we want to be mindful of what kind of weight loss will achieve other target goals and not be afraid of using pharmacotherapy or even surgery as part of your treatment 
for weight loss. And we're going to take a little deeper dive into this. So when you look at this slide, and I think this is so important, this is the landscape of diabetes um, uh, glycemic agents that are available. And from the far left, you can see that those that contribute to substantial weight loss to the far right that typically contribute to weight gain. And so it is important to recognize that you're going to make a decision more than just weight alone, but know that weight will be a factor you'll have to decide. And often you could choose an agent. If you have to use more than one agent, you might choose multiple agents that contribute to weight loss, or you'll pair agents with weight loss or those that come with weight gain to minimize the negative effect of weight as part of the treatment. So this is important to recognize, and I think patients also like to know, what can I expect beyond glucose if I'm taking this medicine? These are the typical uh, weight loss that you see in the trials, but it will vary. And I think often patients have a goal, regardless of what therapeutic option you pick, that is well beyond the reach of that single treatment. And so I think it's important for them to know Hey, you know, in the best, you know, across these studies, in the best of these, you might see a 15% weight loss, but you could actually enhance that if you're actively participating in lifestyle as well. And we'll work with you. If you're not getting the expected changes, we'll adjust your therapy. So I think it's so important to know that while these are guidelines, that you want to make sure your patient sets a realistic goal and can be successful. And then when you look at these different therapies, again, this is trying to combine the weight and the A1C efficacy. You can see, again, uh, in the different studies, going from left, looking at terzepatide with metformin or versus uh, semaglutide, going to the right, more looking at medications compared with insulin. You can see, in general, you're seeing... Uh, significant weight loss across the board for the great majority of those studies, and it's combined with the bottom with a 2% or greater A1C reduction. And so this is really a win-win for a lot of our patients when they see both better control and weight reduction, which was not possible many years ago when we were using insulin-based and sulfonylurea-based therapies. And then going back to that model, we want to make sure that while we're working on glucose and while we're working on weight reduction, we should be making sure that we know that most of our patients, if they die, they're going to die from cardiovascular disease. And we need to make sure that we're aware of cardiovascular risk factors and doing comprehensive cardiovascular care, which includes cardiovascular screening, making sure that we're looking at blood pressure and lipid lowering, utilizing statins. Uh, in our patients with diabetes, and then certainly making sure that smoking cessation is a priority for all of our patients, on top of the other things that we're going to talk about. And then finally, we also talked a little bit earlier about chronic kidney disease. This is a very common phenomenon, and it is a silent phenomenon. So we need to make sure that we are screening our patients, both with an EGFR as well as a UACR, so we know both what the, the GFR is and what the protein leakage is, and that we have therapies that not only lower glucose, but also improve uh, kidney uh, outcomes. So what's the future? And again, this is just a glimpse. This is not just saying that this is where we are today, but you can see back from 1987 when there was the first discovery of GLP-1. We've had GLP-1 receptor agonists for nearly two years now, or excuse me, 20 years now. Um, but once we start looking for forward, we might actually be talking about the role of GLP-1 receptor agonists in heart failure, recent study published, maybe a role in uh, peripheral arterial disease, 
Certainly, we're seeing benefit in diabetic kidney disease. There's some early but significant data about the improvement of NASH or newly named metabolic dysfunction associated steatohepatitis and even neurodegenerative disorders. So these agents have the potential to really give you many benefits across the body. And this is so important because our patients are an entire being and we want to protect all of them. So this is what it looks like all together when you're doing comprehensive disease management. And when I look at this, I'm totally overwhelmed. But I know that if I take it in sections and I know that they're all working towards the same goal, we can do well for our patients, make sure they're involved, and help them be successful to set their goals but also reduce their comorbidities. So Javier, I got a case, and I'd love to kind of present this to you, hear your thoughts, hear how you'd like to move forward with this. So this is Andrew. Andrew's 43 years old. He's had type 2 diabetes for two years, but he's got a background history of hypertension, dyslipidemia, and he recently quit smoking. He does have a family history of type 2 diabetes uh, and heart disease, and his mother is recently deceased. His BMI is 30, and so based on his ethnicity and his BMI, that would put him in the obese category, and his A1C is 8.3%, with a blood pressure of 174 over 88. You can see his lipids there, um, and you can see that his EGFR is greater than 90, and his UACR, which is so great that we screen both, is below 30, which is where we'd like it to be. He's got um, mildly high normal transaminases, and he's currently taking glargine 10 units per day, Citagliptin 100 daily, atorvastatin 40, Losartan HCT 112.5 daily. So as you think about Andrew, where do you start? What's your treatment priority? Wow, that's really a, an interesting case, and it's one that we see all the time in clinical practice. And I mean, he certainly is a young man, 43 years of age, and he's got a long road ahead of him. So taking a look at this, I mean, if we could take a stone and we could skim it across the lake and hit multiple bumps, that's going to be the goal, right? So obviously this gentleman needs to lose weight. He needs to get his blood pressure under control. He needs to get his hemoglobin A1C at target. So which one are you going to get first? So I figured we could tackle all three of these by making some simple medication changes, actually, um, and um, using a, uh, an incretin-based therapy would allow us to do so. So when we're looking at his medical therapies, however, it seems that he is on an incretin-based therapy, and that is citagliptin. So citagliptin, as we all know, is an inhibitor of the enzyme DPP-4, which by inhibiting that DPP-4 allows GLP-1 to remain at physiologic levels. But what we've learned over the years is that, you know, in patients with type 2 diabetes, there's a fair amount of incretin insufficiency. And in order to overcome that incretin insufficiency, we would need to provide supraphysiologic or pharmacologic doses of GLP-1. So substituting that citagliptin with a GLP-1 receptor agonist, either as a solo GLP-1 or some of the newer agents which um, have the GLP-1 with GIP as a co uh, uh, as a co-agonist, uh, would certainly. Uh, be quite helpful for somebody like Andrew. Of course, you shouldn't be using the DPP-4 inhibitor in combination with the GLP-1 receptor agonist because for the most part, 
The DPP-4 inhibitor, again, allows GLP-1 to remain at physiologic levels. You're already giving super physiologic uh, GLP-1 with exogenous GLP-1, so there's really no reason for that synagliptin. Now, the question is, what do we do with the insulin, Jay? What do you want to do? Yeah, so I think you've hit a lot of things. And if, when I look at Andrew, he's a young man with lots of risk factors, but no known complications. So we've got a lot to protect. Uh, and while I appreciate that he was initiated on insulin because he wasn't maybe achieving goals with an oral therapy, he certainly doesn't look like he's on a, a weight adequate dose. And so if you're going to choose insulin, you want to pick a, a dose that's maybe weight-based and certainly titrate up. Um, that being said, if you're going to look at a GLP-1 receptor agonist, you actually could maybe even potentially replace both of those agents with a single GLP-1. And that could be a real win-win um, for this patient. Because again, it sounds like he's already busy and it sounds like he's already kind of uh, maxed out. And if we could do something that's long acting, maybe even once a week, this might be a really nice therapy for him. So let's take a look at his hemoglobin A1C. Hemoglobin A1C of 8.3%. So what should his A1C target be? If you're in the ADA camp, less than seven. If you're in the ACE camp, less than or equal to 6.5. So at the very least, we need 1.3% reduction in that hemoglobin A1C. So if we're going to be using incretin-based therapies, right, and we choose to leave that basal insulin on board, then if the A1C was less than 8%, then we should probably reduce the dose of the basal insulin by 20% to avoid nocturnal hypoglycemia, right? Because the basal insulin controls the fasting glucose uh, and intermeal control. The long-acting GLP-1 gives you postprandial glucose control in a glucose-dependent fashion, but it also shuts down the alpha cell from producing glucagon, so you get fasting plasma glucose control. So that's a really, really important lesson for our audience to learn if we're going to be, if we're going to be using a GLP-1 in combination with the basal. But looking at that hemoglobin A1C and looking at the potency of these newer combination incretin-based therapies, GLP-1 plus GIP, I think it would be safe in somebody like Andrew to discontinue that basal insulin and that citagliptin and put them on this combination GLP-1 GIP therapy because I think our likelihood of achieving that target is going to be very real. And the other thing that's really important here is that blood pressure because that blood pressure is, is I mean, it's quite high. But Jay, what do you think? What would you do with that blood pressure? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is recheck it, right? Make sure he's sitting down for five minutes. Make sure we do it properly. Uh, he may already be anxious because he knows that things are not going so well. Um, but certainly you can maximize the current agents. He's not on the maximum dose of hydrochlorothiazide for his current tablet. Let's make sure he's taking his medicines regularly. We actually don't know that. Um, so we should be assessing that. And then even have him monitor his blood pressure at home. And depending upon what his blood pressure is, that might determine how soon I bring him back. Because normally I'd probably bring him back in a month if I'm just starting a long-acting GLP-1 receptor agonist. But I might bring him back sooner if I'm worried about his blood pressure. You know, Jay, so we keep talking about insulin in this particular case. And insulin has been our friend for many many years and it'll never go away. There's going to be patients who still require insulin for glucose lowering strategies. And well, we know that sometimes insulin is associated with hypoglycemia risk and weight gain, 
But what if we were to take insulin and combine it with a GLP-1 receptor agonist? So here we're looking at some data, looking at a combination, a fixed ratio combination of insulin-glargine with a short-acting GLP-1 receptor agonist called lixazenatide. So uh, lixazenatide is actually an interesting agent because it's a short-acting agent. And what we've learned about the short-acting GLP-1s is that they exert a significant prandial effect. So when we're looking at these patients on a background of insulin-glargine or this fixed-ratio combination, we could see that the hemoglobin A1c reduction by week 30 wind up being greater in the iglarlixi group compared to the insulin-glargine group. And again, it's because insulin-glargine is only controlling the fasting and intermeal control, whereas the iglarlixi combination, you're tackling postprandial glucose as well as fasting glucose. But remember, lixazenatide is a short-acting GLP-1, and the greatest prandial effect that you see with that short-acting GLP-1 is immediately following its dose, which was dosed at breakfast time. But when we look at the relative percentage of patients that were able to successfully achieve a hemoglobin A1c target of less than 7 or less than or equal to 6.5%, we saw that a greater number of patients with this fixed ratio combination were successfully able to achieve it. And as I mentioned before, those patients that were taking insulin glargine wound up gaining weight during the course of this study, whereas those that were on the fixed ratio combination actually wind up losing weight. So the GLP-1 in combination with insulin winds up being quite helpful. So what about the SURPASS-6 study? And this is looking at intensification with either prandial insulin or with terzepatide. So in this clinical study, patients that were on basal insulin were uh, selected to either go undergo full physiologic replacement with mealtime insulins on the back to backbone of the basal insulin versus adding this tirzepatide molecule, which is a GLP-1 GIP co-agonist to, to the background basal insulin. And we could see that the efficacy at week number 52 was favored in those that were on the uh, tirzepatide in combination with the basal insulin. And when we're looking at the proportion of patients that achieved a hemoglobin A1C target of less than 7%, almost double the amount of patients were able to successfully achieve that in those that were in the tirzepatide group. Now let's take a look at weight, because when we're looking at baseline, relative to baseline, those that were on the basal insulin group that were intensified with prandial insulin wound up gaining weight as one would expect, but take a look at the weight difference in those that were intensified with tirzepatide. And you could see that there was a significant weight benefit that was demonstrated in this population of patients. Let's move on to the second part, which is encouraging personal success through individualized shared decision-making. So I think it's really important that we need to exercise shared decision-making because once we actually collaborate with the patient. It winds up being a lot easier for the patient to remain adherent to their medical therapies, to tolerate the medical therapies that they actually have been assigned to. We empower the patient. Now, there is a tool that is available in most electronic medical records, and it's called the SDMQ9 tool. So um, basically, the patient is probed to determine whether or not um, 
the doctor made clear that a decision needs to be made, what decisions were actually implemented, whether or not the doctor was informative to the patient in terms of the different therapeutic options that were available, with explanations of advantages and disadvantages, and whether or not the patient actually understood uh, all that was conveyed by the clinician. Um, of course, it says my doctor in the SDMQ9 tool, but remember, we have a lot of nurse practitioners and physician assistants that are also taking the reins when it comes to managing our patients with type 2 diabetes. And this tool winds up being really, really important because it gives us insight in terms of how good a job we're doing in helping our patients along. And speaking about report cards, here we have some data from Canada where uh, patients were actually probed and healthcare professionals were actually uh, probed in terms of how well they were doing with patient care. And what's really interesting and eyebrow raising is the misperception that we as clinicians actually have and how we think our patients are um, understanding the information that we're providing. And based on these data, it seems that we're not doing as good a job as we possibly could in terms of conveying some of these very principles for our patients. And remember, if the patients have a better understanding, if they uh, have greater belief in the recommendations that we're making and in the explanations that we're providing, then they are more likely to adhere to therapy and achieve some of those very targets that we actually uh, ascribe our patients to get. So what about racial bias? People of color report feeling dismissed, disregarded, devalued, and excluded from the decision-making process. And again, this is not me saying it, but this is some from publications that have become available as early as last year, 2022. So Jay, what can you tell us about patient-centered approaches? Yeah, and I want to really highlight, Javier, what you said is that uh, patients are often felt like they're not heard, not respected, and we're not always aware of the, the perspective of our patients. So this is an opportunity for us to reframe the discussion by being more patient-centered. And so at a very simple level, and I think one of the, the areas where we've seen the greatest bias has been in the discussion of excessive weight. And so I'd love for the audience to really think about using this tool to say, you know, rather than saying, have you ever tried to lose weight or, you know, do you know that your weight is, is excessive? Say, is now a good time for us to discuss your weight and your health and how they might be affecting each other and how we can work together on it? That language is really important. As we think about steps the ADA really recommends in terms of management and assessment of weight, Use patient-centered language. Remember that we're using objective data such as height, weight, BMI. And we can also watch the weight over time as a trajectory. Certainly, we want to monitor this in the relationship to comorbidities. And when we have a discussion and we weigh our patients, we're going to do it in a way that's respectful, private, and matches the needs of our patient. Once we have those things settled, and this is not just for the clinician, it's for the entire office to be working in a way that we're patient-centered, it's really going to let the patient know, hey, you know, your biggest risk factor might indeed be genetics. So let's talk about ways that we can address this, and ultimately, how can we tie excessive weight to things that are important to the patient as in addition, such as hyperglycemia or cardiovascular risk. 
As I mentioned earlier, lifestyle is always a key component of this, and I love the simplicity of Life's Essential Eight. So always thinking about eight things that we should always be looking at. And I think this is worthwhile to have in your office and let patients know that, you know, we can't do all of these eight things at once. We're going to set smart goals and maybe which of these eight things do you want to address today or which of the things do you think we can make progress on? And then we'll choose another one once we have success, because too often people try to attack everything at once and then they get frustrated. And then when we consider weight as a treatment target, as a treatable condition, we're moving upstream rather than waiting for hyperglycemia and its comorbid uh, complications. We also know that there are other things that are precursors. We could be identifying excessive weight with hyperlipidemia, hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or now metabolic dysfunction associated steatohepatitis. So we, we actually can be identifying this earlier and tie it into many daily life skills that might be very important for our patient. And no matter what we choose, we know that lifestyle is an important part of all um, weight management. And so we have to find out what things are achievable for the patient, which things are priority for the patient, and which fit in their cultural and religious norms. And once we know their weight loss goal for the patient, then we can say, okay, you may or may not be able to achieve this with lifestyle alone. Let's make sure that we line things up for you to be successful. That may mean setting smaller goals. It might mean setting goals over time, or it might be using combination therapy. And then when you look at this, when you're looking at percent weight loss, many patients have unrealistic goals. I want to lose 80 pounds by next Friday. That's not a realistic goal. So let's highlight that even a 3% weight loss, which is quite honestly not significant for many patients from their standpoint, can affect lipids and glucose. 5% weight loss can really have a meaningful difference in blood pressure and even fat in the liver. You get to 10% weight loss and you can maintain that, you're actually getting meaningful changes for comorbid diseases. And you get to 15% weight loss and you're actually seeing a change in the pathophysiology of these conditions and maybe even reversal of some of those conditions, at least for the temporary standpoint. From a diabetes-focused standpoint, we now have evidence that diabetes can be indu- diabetes remission can be induced. Diabetes remission is defined as an A1C of less than 6.5% persisting for at least three months in the absence of any medications. We now know that studies such as DIRECT, which is a lifestyle nutrition-based intervention, induced remission in 46% of the participants at one year. We know that surgery can do this, and we also know that medications can get to an A1C that is at the remission level, but we have to have a strategy because typically when you stop medication, the glucose is going to climb right back again. We've talked a little bit about this already. When you're using GLP-1-based therapy for diabetes and excessive weight, certainly make sure that your patient guide them about eating slowly, maybe even eating half of their meal, coming back in 20 minutes trying to avoid foods that might trigger GI symptoms, including high fat or spicy foods, avoid using alcohol, and then know that we can achieve weight loss in many of these patients, but let's make sure that they know what to expect and they can be patient. 
Rapid weight loss is rarely good for anyone, and it actually can be a trigger for some of the problems that are sometimes associated with GLP-1 receptor agonists, such as gallbladder disease. It's built on top of a foundation of lifestyle therapy, and again, making sure that there's both aerobic and uh, resistant training there, and make sure that when we're doing this, we're setting the patient up for success. So they feel good about each of the, the goals that they achieve, and as they achieve it, we continue to move forward. And then when you look at things that affect factors, uh, we've talked about some of this. I think don't automatically titrate everyone to the max dose until you know each dose has been titrated. Make sure you give patients a re reasonable time to know when are they going to start seeing glucose changes and what glucose changes might they see. What are the most common GI side effects? And when they have GI side effects, how can they minimize them or how long will they take before they go away? And because we have a wide range of GLP-1 receptor agonists, do they prefer an oral agent, a daily agent, or a weekly agent? And what's the mechanism for delivery? And I think these now have really given many patients the power to choose. When we look at um, things that improve adherence, we've kind of hit most of those things. Make sure that they are comfortable with the device, take the first injection in the office, find out what frequency they would like, and then make sure you check in at least in the first month but set those short and long-term goals. So Javier, what, what do you do when you talk to your patients when you're starting GLP-1-based therapies? How do you um, kind of negotiate and kind of highlight the things that they should know? Well, for the most part, I think it's important to understand some physiology of how the medication is working because sometimes people take medications, they don't know how it works. But for the most part, if they have a better understanding or an inkling, they're more likely to remain adherent to it. Very important is going to be how to mitigate some of the potential adverse GI events that can be experienced with incretin-based therapies, particularly that transient delay in gastric emptying that produces that nausea that's reported. So it's important to tell your patients to avoid fried and fatty foods and to stop eating if you feel full and drink a lot of cold water because that also uh, tends to be quite helpful in terms of mitigating our patients. And um, also very important for tolerability, and you hit the nail on the head, is not to be overzealous in terms of titration of the medication. You know, slow, gradual increase as needed is going to be very, very important. And, um, you know, these agents are quite effective, but it is not a race. And as you mentioned before, it's not to lose 80 pounds in a week. It's not going to happen. But over time, it very well may. So, Jay, you presented a case earlier before. So, I think it's my turn to present the case. So, here's Ella. So, she is a black woman and she's 56 years of age. She's had diabetes for about eight years with dyslipidemia now for 12 years. She's had hypertension for six years. She suffers with angina. She's got reflux esophagitis. She's got obstructive sleep apnea. When we look at her family history, dad had type 2 diabetes. He died following a stroke at the age of 66. Mom is 81, hypertensive, coronary disease. So um, in terms of her review of systems, she does complain of fatigue, poor sleep. She's got knee pain. She's got swelling in the legs. And when we look at what she's currently using, She's on metformin, 500 milligrams daily, glipizide, 15 milligrams per day. She's on pravastatin, 10 milligrams daily, lisinopril, 20 milligrams daily. 
So pretty complex case, right, Jay? So what do you think the highest priority in terms of management would be for somebody like Ella? Yeah, so, and you're right. There's a lot going on here. So the th- first thing I would tell Ella is I know you're doing a good job. You're eight years in this condition and you're on two of the kind of baseline agents and your A1C 7.4. So while there's things we can improve, you've done a lot of things right. And I think empowering her to know that she's got a very complicated life and a complicated medical history, but I, I want to, whatever effort she's taking, I want to support. Now, that being said, I am much more worried about her angina and her, her um, kidney function because she's got stage 3A, A2, CKD. Um, we really need to protect those, from the, those conditions from progressing. So I would not take a glucocentric pathway here. I would say I'm worried about her weight. I'm worried about her kidney function. And I'm worried about the fact that she's got angina and she's got a very unpredictable life where she doesn't have the wiggle room or reserve that she might have had before. So again, I would say, what are her priorities now that I've shared my concerns and how can I help her best? And, you know, she might just say, I'd love to be able to walk again. And so again, here's a case where, where meaningful weight loss could really mean a lot for her. I think we would really need to highlight the silent nature of hypertension and diabetes as it relates to the kidney and do targeted therapy such as an SGLT2 or a GLP-1 to reduce that uh, progression of nephropathy while protecting uh, cardiovascular disease. So that's where I would start. How about you? She's already on RAS inhibition with lisinopril. And well, I mean, if I was going to really select the medical therapy, glipizide definitely would not be the medical therapy for her, but rather a GLP-1 receptor agonist or even the GLP-1-GIP combination may offer even better improvement in terms of her hemoglobin A1c. The glipizide is somewhat concerning because that glipizide may ultimately lead to significant hypoglycemic events, and it's something that we really don't need, and it might be also contributing towards the weight gain that she's experiencing. So substituting that um, that uh, sulfonylurea with a GLP-1 or a GLP-1-GIP combination would make the most sense. But what's very nice about a case like this is how well in these incretin-based therapies would play in the sandbox with an SGLT2 inhibitor. Because we do know that the SGLT2 inhibitors offer significant benefit in terms of delaying the progression of diabetes-related chronic kidney disease. Also very important are newer classes that have become available to help with the kidneys, like the non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. So somebody like Ella would significantly benefit from being on a GLP-1 GIP combination more so than the GLP-1, only because of the weight loss that we see with this GLP-1-GIP combination, uh, especially since she is eclipsing morbid obesity. What's very nice about the GLP-1-GIP is that they do, in the cardiovascular outcome study, demonstrate a beneficial effect on the kidney. You want to talk a little bit about that, Jay? Yeah, I think we would, I agree 100%. Right now, she's on glucose targeted therapy and she hasn't reported any hypoglycemia, but I certainly would not increase glipizide in this case just because she's close to her goal. This is a time to do whole body therapy. So she's a busy lady. She's got a busy life. We could probably trade these two therapies out for something that's simpler 
And while I may not do it all at once, I might initiate the GLP-1 first, back off that uh, sulfonylurea, and then substitute in the SGLT-2, we really could give her much more bang for her buck by making those changes. And, and I think it's so important that when we use uh, sulfonylureas, we often forget that hypoglycemia, even if people don't report it, they might be having it. And so there is evidence that regardless of your A1C, you might still have the same risk of hypoglycemia. Absolutely. And when we're looking at severe hypoglycemia rates in terms of medical therapies, here you have some data that was collected uh, between 2007 and 2020. And I mean, the definition of severe hypoglycemia was actually defined a little bit differently here compared to most other clinical trials because typically we consider a severe hypoglycemic event as requiring third-party assistance or a, a glucose level that's actually quite low. But here in this clinical study, it was defined as hospitalization related to hypoglycemia or death. And one thing that we do know is the fact that you can have unrecognized hypoglycemic events and they can be deadly. So um, this has been really shed to light, particularly when using, um, when using some of the clinical tools in the office, like a continuous glucose monitor where um, nocturnal hypoglycemic events and hypoglycemic events in general sometimes go unrecognized. Now let's talk a little bit about using GLP-1s uh, and GLP-1 GIP combination therapy, because here we're looking at data of terzepatide compared to dulaglutide, although the dulaglutide dose in this particular study was at the first therapeutic dose that became available, which was 1.5 milligrams per week. Since that time, you've had the 3 milligram and the 4.5 milligram dose that have become available, but these studies were conducted prior to those agents having been approved for use. So when we're looking at uh, tirazepatide, which is that GLP-1 GIP combination, when we're looking at the relative percentage of patients that were able to achieve an A1C target of less than 7% and less than 6.5%, you could see that the tirazepatide group actually eclipsed uh, all of these dulaglutide patients and actually surpassed them to a significant degree. What's also very interesting here is taking a look at that hemoglobin A1C of less than 5.7%. And here you could see that there was a tremendous benefit in those that were in the uh, GLP-1 GIP group. So that's actually quite important. But what about weight? And when we're looking at the percentage of patients that were able to achieve 5% weight loss, 10% weight loss, and even 15% weight loss, you could see that the, the number of patients that were able to successfully achieve these targets was significantly greater in those that were on the GLP-1 GIP combination therapy. But there are hormonal ab abnormalities that do occur with menopause, obviously, and sometimes this may actually uh, contribute towards fat mass distribution and composition within the body. So we can't downplay the effect of menopause in terms of weight. So at this point in time, I am going to conclude the presentation. And what I want to do, Jay, is because we've had such a great discussion here, is I want to turn it over to you so that you can actually hit on some of these key takeaways for this presentation that we both delivered this evening. Yeah, thank you so much. So today, the takeaways we hope you take from this is that we know that timely intensification of therapy is needed to prevent 
or even reverse complications of type 2 diabetes. There are many medications for diabetes as well as other conditions, hypertension, as mood as well, that have a significant effect on weight. Please be mindful about what medicines contribute to weight gain and try to limit their use and utilize agents that benefit to have a beneficial effect on weight. We know that GLP-1 receptor agonists have beneficial effects on multiple comorbidities of diabetes, including weight and cardiovascular events. And now we have the first twin cretin, GIP GLP-1 receptor agonist, approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Now, as we think about this, it's important for us to have a patient-centered approach and know which patients would benefit both from a reduction in A1C, but also a reduction in weight. Know that those patients who have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or stroke as well as potentially liver disease and chronic kidney disease may also benefit from these. And remember that these are one of the most potent agents uh, for diabetes. And so you're going to have the most likelihood to achieve uh, the glycemic goal. We know that even modest weight loss um, can have, make a big difference for a patient's risks and moderate weight loss can really reduce comorbidities and complications. When we treat our patients, we need to be respectful inclusive, and use shared decision-making, and we make sure that we are mindful to include their wishes and desires uh, as part of the treatment decision as we work together. And then ultimately, as a, as a primary care clinician, you do not have to go it alone. Make sure that you know you have a team that can work with you and your patients to optimize their health. Javier, I'd love to hear your takeaway for the listeners today. Of course. I think you did such a great job. I, 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 I can't top that. All I do know is that we have a myriad of medications in the toolbox to manage our patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, I think it's important to remember that we really shouldn't be looking at a glucocentric approach towards managing diabetes, but also take into consideration the comorbidities. And remember that these comorbidities are usually a downstream effect that can occur as a consequence of obesity in combination with diabetes. So it is important, weight does matter, selecting the appropriate therapies that would lead to significant weight loss and good glycemic control will have significant lasting effect for most of our patients. They'll achieve their targets. They'll feel better. You'll feel better. Everybody wins, especially when using the appropriate therapies. That ends our presentation for today. I'd like to thank my co-chair, Jay Shubrook, for an excellent discussion. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Javier. I hope you've found the activity informative. Don't forget to download the practice aids They've been designed to be useful in all types of primary care practices and might save you some time. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XCX860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.